Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's very interesting topic, unfinished business from last week, you'll recall that we revisited our conversation with uh, eminent historian Joseph Ellis on his book, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. And we mentioned that Professor Ellis, I believe, uh, still teaches, uh, at times he's retired, but still teaches at Mount Holyoke. And uh, we got this uh, email from our friend Steve. Steve says, please tell your guests that even when he's on a radio program in Utah, he's still being heard by Mount Holyoke students, or at least alums. This listener is a Mount Holyoke alum, the abbreviation alum avoiding the question of whether it should be alumnus or alumna, in my case being a male who studied at this all-women college. I studied my junior year at Mount Holyoke, being a transfer from Bodoin on the 12 College Exchange. Fellow Mount Holyoke alums, men, but mostly women, are still among my best friends. Today's show will be like being home in South Hadley, Massachusetts. As the professor will explain to you, the proper pronunciation of the college's name is an unbroken egg, not a sacred tree. Mount Holyoke, not Mount Holyoke. Thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate that. I always love uh, Steve's reminiscences about his time in the East. He's uh, been now, I think, many years in the West. Uh, And then uh, Steve writes back in. um, He says, uh, at uh, MHC, Mount Holyoke College, connection was fun for me as you introduced your guest. If you ever visit MHC, don't forget the pronunciation device about eggs and trees. By the way, Professor Ellis mentioned that he also taught at Amherst College, which is up the road from Mount Holyoke, and is my brother's alma mater. Well, its pronunciation is also a shibboleth. The H is silent. Steve says, now you're ready to cruise the Connecticut Valley and sound like a native. So appreciate that, Steve. And uh, you can uh, check out that conversation with uh, uh, Professor Ellis on our website, upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. How can the stories we tell protect the places we love? Friends of Cedar Mesa and Tory House Press are presenting a conversation on the unique ways desert communities can organize around and diversify narratives to protect Utah's red rock landscapes. The event is called Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative, and it's coming on Friday, 7 p.m. at the Bears Ears Education Center on Main Street in Bluff, Utah. Drawing from Amy Irvine's latest book, Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness, Panelists Amy Irvine and Regina Lopez-Weitzkonk and moderator Kirsten Johanna Allen will discuss the lone male narrative that still has its roots planted firmly at the center of today's wilderness movement. They'll explore the need to redefine and expand that movement by welcoming new voices and seeking community over solitude. And uh, today we welcome in those uh, three participants in that panel discussion. Amy Irvine is a sixth-generation Utah, longtime public lands activist. Her memoir, Trespass, Living at the Edge of the Promised Land, received the Orion Book Award, the Illinois uh, Desert Writers Award, and Colorado Book Award, while the Los Angeles Times wrote it might very well be Desert Solitaire's literary heir. Amy Irvine lives and writes off the grid in southwest Colorado, just spitting distance from her Utah homeland. Uh, Amy Irvine, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here this morning. We appreciate you taking time to be with us. Regina Lopez-Weitzkunk is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and a contributor to the anthology's Red Rock Stories and Edge of Morning, a former tribal councilwoman and co-chair of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. She serves as district director of the Montezuma-Cortez Board of Education in uh, Tewayak, Colorado. Did I get that right, Regina Lopez-Weitzkunk? Tewayak. Okay, thank you. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen is publisher and editorial director of Tory House Press. 
And she's a native New Yorker, but also a sixth-generation Utah. Feels most at home hiking in Utah's Red Rock country. She has two grown children, lives with a pair of cats, and her spouse, Mark Bailey, in Salt Lake City and Tor, Utah. Kirsten, Johanna, Ellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Let me start with you, uh, Amy Irvine. Um, very interesting um, and uh, getting a lot of uh, positive buzz, the, the, the new book, uh, Desert uh, Cabal. Uh, I want to start with this, what the narrative has been. Um, so I wonder if you tell me a little bit about the, what the effect of Edward Abbey and especially Desert Solitude uh, had on you. Well, Tom, um, I think like every person that deeply loves the desert um, in a, for lack of a better word, less conservative, politically conservative way, Edward Abbey had a huge influence on the way we looked at landscape and the way we um, understood our privilege and responsibility to speak and act on behalf of these lands. Um, the Other Solitaire was actually not the most um, important book for me because I felt like when I read it, it was already the, the experiences I was having on public lands, having grown up on um, Western public lands almost entirely. And the book, actually, that really spoke to me was The Monkey Wrench Gang, um, not because of eco-terrorism, which I think is actually fairly um, pointless when we're trying to create community in a broad constituency for pre- protecting places. Um, I, but I love the idea that it instilled in me that, that I, I could be an activist on behalf of places that I cared about and more than ever ecologically very significant you spent you spent a lot of time out in this uh, out in these lands. I wonder. I'm going to ask uh, each of you to talk about that. But uh, what what is this particular landscape meant to you? Oh, um, I grew up hunting, camping, fishing uh, with my father, and sitting alongside my grandmother, who's a, a pretty well known uh, Utah artist, Ada Irvine. Her work hangs in. The Alta Club downtown, it's shown at Phillips Gallery. I think they still have some work showing there. Um, so I would sit with her while she painted um, alongside, on the shores or on a boat on Lake Powell, um, down in Torrey, in Kirsten's neck of the wood, actually. And I would say that that's really where I learned to just, uh, that the lands were just something I almost took for granted because they were so much a part of me from such an early age. And it was easy to access. You just got to walk out there. <laughs> um, so it, it was kind of shocking me to find out that other Utahns had a very different view of how public lands should be treated, which sort of um, set me apart from, from friends and relatives and neighbors. But, but I think increasingly we see more people um, leaning towards what Abby was trying to convey, which is, which is um these places aren't going to take care of themselves, and someday there's going to be so many of us loving them to death that we have to think more proactively about how we preserve them. Well, turn next to Regina Lopez Weiskunk um, and ask you about this narrative: how we how we talk about the land uh, affects, I think, uh, what we do about it. Does it not? Absolutely. So, um, being a Native American, one of the things that make the land so important to us is um, how we use it, but even more so, how do we let that those areas rest? And for my people, the you people, we have seasons. So there's seasons and there's um, being observant to what is available in terms of resources. And watching the discussion about specifically public land, um, 
absolutely there's a threat of loving it to death and it getting so much attention. And I, I can understand the concern when people say it's going to attract people. Yes, but on the same token, I think that there's great opportunity to tell stories of how many generations of my ancestors, how they use the land and to learn from one another. And one of the only ways to to share that information is to share your story, to share our story, to gain a better understanding of, of how do we how do we be that responsible individual to help lead the groups that, that are able to come in and at the same time really gain an understanding with with one another. I think having a full discussion means we all see all points of view. The good, the bad, the ugly, the not so pretty. But how do we learn from that? And, and one of the only ways that I see that have been, has been valuable is to the test of time is through story sharing. One of uh, one of the main factors I, I could guess, and I'm reading a paragraph from your essay in Red Rock Stories, Virginia Lopez White Skunk, uh, is this idea of home. You say Native Americans have always maintained a relationship with the land. Bears Ears is home to the dwellings of our ancestors, final resting place of our people, sacred areas where our people still collect their traditional herbs and medicines. Um, uh, today, it, it becomes very significant when when various uh, peoples claim this as, as home. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that, um, and we can't really do anything about it, but we have to be observant, is um, what is home? How is that defined? And for Native Americans, we never seen boundaries, but rather we lived, um, we coexisted with, with other indigenous people, the, the land, the animals, the elements. It was about having this relationship with many different, um, many different things, ideas, and, and beings out there. That's home. Home technically doesn't mean the four walls in your, your, your house. That's, a that's physical, but we have a whole, broad perspective of what home means to us, and that's where we live and conduct our lives and our duties. I want to turn to uh, Kirsten uh, Johanna Allen. Um, so you're a native New Yorker, but also sixth-generation Utah. So this, this idea of home uh, gets somewhat complicated, but it's, uh, you know, we, we can have several homes. I wonder, uh, the sixth-generation Utah part of this, I wonder if you could expand on that, what this land has meant to you. I have lived in Utah since grade school. I was born in New York City. My parents were there for graduate school, but both of my parents have roots that go back to the the mid-19th century um, Mormon settlement uh, in Utah. And so this is, I, I feel lucky to have more than one home space. I feel a home in New York City, and I feel at home here. I was a little girl a lot on the Great Basin where my grandparents lived. I didn't discover the Red Rock country of southern Utah until I was a young adult and immediately felt I was home, that this was a place that could nurture me and that I could I could be a part of in some way. And that relationship has been developing over time, and I found my own experience of the desert move through different experiences of of community and solitude and, and community and the, the richness of bringing many voices together to love a landscape and learn how to love from each other. 
Oh, I wonder what you would say about this uh, this idea of uh, wanting to change the narrative, needing to change the narrative, and bring other voices in. Uh, this idea of uh, the lone male narrative that has existed. It's a very romantic notion, and many people have have sought solace in the in the wilderness alone. But far more have sought solace sought solace in community because, of course human beings came from came from earth so we work together to to use its resources and live together and we hope we can learn to do that in a cohesive way i think that the 20th century narrative around the 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 solitary go out in the wilderness and find yourself has been uh, has had too much play in in terms of what actual human experience really is and so I was so delighted when Andy Nettle of Back Up Beyond Books uh, had invited Amy to to write a piece in celebration of the 50th anniversary of, of Desert Solitaire, certainly an iconic piece of literature, and then watched it become something else. And when he called me and said, you know, Shel, would you like to co-publish this amazing this amazing piece that Amy's written, I was just delighted because she's calling people together in a different way, in a broader way, to indeed create a, a broader constituency for loving public lands, not just the the, the lone backpacker or uh, that, that we've heard so much about in the romantic, iconic literature of landscape. Amy O'Brien, I wanted to maybe could uh, pick up that uh, thread right there. So the it's right in the title, right? Desert Solitaire versus Desert Cabal. What were you talking about with Cabal? Well, uh, the original form of Cabal um, meant something holistic and spiritual. In fact, that's where Kabbalism comes from, the Kabbalah um, of Jewish Jewish mysticism, um, and that that old definition actually has an E on the end, what makes it a very, which, which comes from French. And it, it, it is a, a rich kind of way of gathering and knowing and creating tradition and, and also creating deep lasting change, um, like to the very core of who we are. And I love that, that original etymology of the word as opposed to desert, uh, desert cabal. Cabal now means, without the E, more of a political intrigue kind of overthrow of government. And so I'd like to play on that, too, because I, th- I do think we're at a point where many of us are really alarmed about um, the governing of public lands and much more. And it will take us gathering together in a way that we haven't before um, to, to protect the wild places. And we're no longer talking about whether it's motorized or non-motorized kind of land uses, we're really talking about, I think, native sovereign rights, which are suddenly um, in the front and center in the news, and as they should be. And that's why I asked Regina Lopez-Whitescone to write her beautiful afterword in this book. It felt like this had to be a group effort, and we had to step into a much deeper meaning of land and our relationship to it in a way that even more people could embrace. Because we're not talking about our, what kind of recreation or aesthetic privilege we uh, seek to have on public lands. We're speaking about ecological survival at this point. So you write, uh, going it alone is a failure of contribution and compassion. And this is what drains the world dry. 
This is, this is what you're talking yeah. about. Yes, that's exactly it. The drain the world, the dry comes from the fact that the French version of cabal also means tapeworm. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, there is a way that we've become parasitic instead of uh, having a holistic and very intimate relationship with the landscape and with one another. And so, yes, we all need solitude. We need to go out and have private um, experiences, spiritual, creative, physical, whatever it is. We create our own stories out there, and, and that's really vital. But we also have to come back and gather together in a way that we haven't yet. The, having worked in public lands advocacy for a very long time, um, it's a very privileged white narrative, often very masculine. And what's exciting to me now is to see, for example, the, the effort with the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, of which uh, Regina was a, a founder, bless her heart, um, that was really important work. And I, I feel like the narrative is expanding um, so that the land and the Native people belonging to these lands are front and center and the rest of us also get to be there. And the, the question is not what, what are those people doing that's wrong over there. It's more what can I bring to the table. And also where should I exercise some restraint? Maybe we, even just hikers can love a landscape to death. And so it's sort of how can we all sort of practice some sort of new sense of so almost an ecological chastity, really, um, a lot more restraint in terms of the land. Regina Lopez-Weiskunk, I wonder, uh, follow up on that, um, not loving the land to death, but still enjoying it even more than that, getting getting what we need from it uh, in a spiritual uh, sense. Um, how do we do that when there's so many different communities and, and communities in definite conflict, as we've seen over the, the fight over, over Bears Ears? Uh, how can we be more inclusive? And does part of that involve persuading <laughs> those other communities or uh you know is there enough of community to to from your perspective save these lands uh just with the communities we have well for starters i think you know one of the things that on a very simple and and holistic level is i, I think the barriers that have been um just thrown up for many many generations things as simple as even traditional um, enemy ties with one another there's um, there's all the differences between Native American and, and the Mormon um, homesteaders um, and these are things these are barriers that have been there for generations and one of the things that I have been wholly um, behind us is, is the simple fact that we just need to simply sit down and talk and through those talks we again, we learn about, you know, what's important and what isn't important, and uh, we gain each other's uh, perspectives, and we learn how and when those moments of solitude. Um, I'm sure many people don't um, see that when you go out to harvest. They don't see that as a spiritual activity. But for many of us, um, when we go out to collect and harvest things as simple as sage, um, cedar, um, we almost enter a state of meditation, and we're, we're taught to be respectful and not to over-harvest, to leave some behind um, for those who may come behind, whether they're of this living nature or, you know, spiritual beings. And if I couldn't share that with anybody, then how could you respect the way that we get out on the land? And I think that just 
simply sitting down and talking and knocking, beginning to knock down these barriers is, is the starting point to a lot of this. I used to tell um, a lot of people when I served on the coalition, just have a cup of coffee with me. Let's talk. And I think that that's as simple as it's going to start to unite and to better um, understand one another. And there are so many different uh, ways that we can honor the land um, at the same time use the land in a, in a responsible way. I'd like to follow up. Uh, tell me about those conversations. You invite someone, uh, have a cup of coffee with me. What... Um what what then happens if you just sit down and and talk uh, you know i'd i'd like to, to learn more about what what can ensue when you just sit down and talk well many times when you actually get a, a nice a nice moment to to just sit down and talk to people it it seems like you get to shed some of that professionalism and that um intense uh value of oneself and a lot of times when it, it's been my experience that People of privilege will show up in, you know, this professional attire. And once you start to, to in a in a spiritual sense or in a in non-physical sense, shed some of those barriers, you really end up having to find out that this person probably holds the same views and the same values that you do. They just may have been looked at in a different way. And I've found out many times we're, we have the same common goals. Um, one of the things that I always have talked about many times during the work that I did was at the end of the day, both opposition and, and those that were supporting monument designation, we all wanted the same thing. We wanted protection, we wanted preservation, and we wanted access. It's just how it was being stated, that it looked different, it felt different, but it really wasn't. And when you get to sit down and have these discussions, you actually get to see you're more similar in thought, mind, and spirit than you thought you were. Hmm. And if you don't have those opportunities, you would never know. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten Johanna Howland, um, I want to quote, uh, this is from A.B. Irvine, I'll have you c- comment on this. Uh, she says, I realize now that I'd been unable to speak my own desert dialect, to tell my own stories about Abby's country, and the challenge now was to claim it as my country. That's an important part of the narrative, isn't it? We, we, you know, we, we use the phrase Abby country, don't we? We, well, some people do. Some people do. Okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. As a as a publisher, Trios Press is. Utah's only nonprofit literary publisher, and our our mission is conserva- to promote conservation through literature. But we feel that we can't really do that unless we have more diverse voices talking about these issues. So it's a it's a very big priority for us to publish more women, publish more people of color, publishing and. Book, books are still pretty pretty white and pretty male. And we are, at Torreos Press, we're always, always looking for other voices because I don't think we can, we can do what we need to do, save landscapes we love, without more voices coming together because we don't always have the very same experience, but we may have some similar, some similarities. And so for for us, 
uh, at Trios Press publishing Desert Cabal with with Amy's conversation with Ed Abbey was just right in line with what we want to do. And then Amy inviting Blake Spaulding of Hell's Backbone Grill in Boulder, Utah, to write the foreword and Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk uh, to write the afterword. It really brought some new voices to the conversation that don't drown out. You're not, we're not drowning out Abby's Abby's voice, of course not, and we're we're honoring him by being a part of the conversation about wilderness and how we experience it together, uh, and that we could experience it together. So for for us, the diversity of voices, bringing more than the the male narrative is, is a real priority for us. By the way, um, uh, the events in Bluff, right, and the, so... You have. That's right. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm thinking about the um, the people who may never read Abby and who are you know trying to <laughs> eke out their living and and who are perhaps opposed to everything that uh, that he stood for and everything that Amy Urban is is writing the book. Do you? Uh, how do you expand the, the the conversation to to those folks? Well, I think. One of the things we try to do is have more and more community conversations in areas outside of the Wasatch Front. And the more that we can do that, the more we have the opportunity to bring different people to the table. There are always going to be some some folks who we're we're not going to we're not going to see things the same way. But I think that's more exceptional than we are than it needs to be than it actually is and so having a community conversation in bluff right in the heart of san juan county is a is a great opportunity to open up the doors open up the conversation to more than just the the white recreationists that um have have come to love bears ears and other parts of southern utah because it's so so splendid and Friends of Cedar Mesa, they're working so hard on their education effort to help people visit with respect. Um, this is just another opportunity to to learn how to honor the land, as Regina said, honor these places that people have lived in for since time immemorial and how do we how do we visit with respect and and still bring our own stories into into this space into this conversation so i i think about amy's amy's work here in desert cabal as as really bringing people together over time over cultures over landscapes i think there's a lot of opportunity there Let's take a break and we'll come back more um, on this event, which, by the way, is coming up on March 1st. If you're going to be in the Bluff area, you're invited. It's free and open to the public. Presented by Friends of Cedar Mesa and Torrey House Press. And it's called Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative. And involved on that panel are Amy Irvine, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, and Kirsten Johanna Allen. We have uh, those three with us for the hour. You can join this conversation. I hope that you will with your uh, question or comment uh, to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, anywhere you're listening. Um, or you could call us, 800-826-1495. More following this. 
I was lucky to hear the American premiere of this piece, the Violin Concerto by Jaco Kuzisto. I came away elated and astonished and dying to hear it again. Can't wait to share it with you. Elena Vahala solos with the Minnesota Orchestra. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Cowboy Rendezvous, March 1st through 3rd at Mountain Crest High School in Hiram, including Stephanie Davis, heard on public radio, the High Country Cowboys, American Idol contestant Kristen Harris, Doris Daly, and Ned Ledoux. Information at cvcowboy.org. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. You can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're looking ahead to an event uh, presented by Friends of Cedar Mesa and Torrey House Press. They're presenting a conversation on the unique ways desert communities can organize around and diversify narratives to protect Utah's red rock landscapes. The event is called Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative. It's Friday, 7 p.m. at the Bears Ears Education Center, which is on Main Street in Bluff. And uh, they're drawing from Amy Irvine's latest book, Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness. Panelists will include Amy Irvine, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, and the moderator will be uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen. We have uh, those three with us for the hour. You can join us at uh, upraccess at gmail.com with your question or comment, upraccess at gmail.com. I want to start this segment with uh, Amy Irvine. Um, just, I'm curious, this must have been an extraordinary experience for you, having read Edward Abbey, having been very affected by him. Uh, in your youth, and uh, now, in a way, being out there in those desert places with him. Yes, um, it's been quite a wild ride because this book, I jokingly compared to, I guess not so jokingly because it's actually a very serious thing for some people, but um, compared it to an unplanned pregnancy because it was supposed to be a small two, 3,000-word introductory essay to a special version of Desert Solitaire that was um, back of Beyond Books was um, producing for the 50th anniversary of Desert Solitaire's publication, and and I it's, it never dawned on me to put down on paper some sort of conversation with Edward Abbey until I was asked to write this this essay, and suddenly um, I realized how much I had to say, and it was a lot of writing that I really had not had success publishing in the, in the years before the Trump administration and the Kavanaugh hearings and sort of the whole Me Too movement. And I'd argue also that Standing Rock and um, and the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, their their sudden movement on the on the social activism scene also sort of created this new way to go back and look at Abby. And I, and I thought, wow, even I haven't realized. Um, how important this conversation is, and all that public, all the work that I wasn't getting published. As soon as the sort of this um, new landscape appeared, with the, the Bears Ears National Monument being eviscerated by 85 percent, suddenly there was just this whole new kind of framework to speak within that really didn't feel like it had any sort of platform before. And 
So I, you know, I think that, and I'd love to follow up on something that's, it's relevant here, but on what Kirsten said. Yes. Your last Mm -hmm. question, Tom, and that is that, um, you asked about the people in the rural communities in Utah and throughout the West that are trying, you know, that are trying to make a living on or near public lands and, and the conservation agenda is often at odds with that. In this book, I actually take on sort of the left-leaning, tree-hugging crowds far more than I do um, rural conservative Utah. Um, I feel like we are in a, we're in the eleventh hour in terms of climate change, and whether you, whatever your feelings are about how climate change has come about, what the reasons are, I think we all know it's changing. Uh, we have profound drought and fires in in the West now that are really altering our lives. And it, at this point, it feels to me like we, the most important thing we could do other than point the finger at others is to say, what is my part? What is the, what is the part I can, that I can do to help reverse this, this horrible trend if we really want the earth to go on and we really want the stories to live on and we want something for our children? My child is growing up in an age where she doesn't know if our house will be here uh, we live in, in a very, very dry part of southwestern Colorado. She doesn't know, should they do drills at school for school shootings, Colorado being sort of the epicenter of that. And um, they're growing up in a very different kind of reality. So it doesn't do me any good to teach her to point the finger at everybody else's bad habits. Really, I have to find out what my part is. And one of the things that I can do right now is is – Support um, the Bears Ears and Friends of Cedar Mesa in in maybe sort of stepping back a little bit and exercising some restraint because right now those lands are suddenly targeted by a lot of influx of tourism, uh, motorized or non-motorized, and it doesn't even matter. But there's no management plan in place, and so we have to start thinking above and beyond land conservation as we've thought about it before, and now in terms of, like, ecological survival. Yeah, I, uh, I take your point, Ed, and I was going to ask you about that. You're, you're, you're taking to task uh, sort of the liberal side far more than you do the, the other side. I want to read this, uh, quote you. Amy Irvine says, No longer can we be voyeurs, uh, catching from scenic pullouts mere glimpses of the wild, uneven territory of our collective unconscious. The hour at hand demands that we molt all that we want and believe we know. Now we must slither, belly to stone, into the dens and burrows of our souls. And you're you're directing that at the the people who are (laughs) out there for spiritual reasons, I think. Indeed, and the recreationists, every one of us. Every one of us is culpable in what is happening to the planet. And, um, And every one of us has different ways that we can scale back our our impacts. And so it's not so much about at this point who's making the worst impact. By just the sheer numbers of us, we are making impacts. And so we have to stop pointing the finger. We have to come back and say, you know, really take inventory in our deepest souls and say, what can I do? What can I give? What can I live without? So that these places may live on. Uh, I I have one quick example too. this is a place, this is where I think there's a blind spot with, with liberals. For example, I've thought in a crowd, and we've had huge crowds at these readings, these book events, um, people are really hungry for this conversation. Um, I'll say, how many of you are opposed to grazing on public lands? Every hand goes up in the room. And I say, okay, and how many of you are on the paleo diet? 
and everybody's hand starts to go up and they put it back down and they, they realize, oh, <laughs> I eat a lot of meat and I oppose grazing. Well, that there's something wrong there. So, you know, like where are the places that we are missing our own hypocrisies? I, find, I stumble on mine daily and um, th- that's the only place I can make a difference. Uh, I want to turn to next to Regina Lopez Weiskunk and uh, and talk about um, this kind of you know realistic point of view that we've just been talking about with Amy Irvine, uh, and I want to frame it uh, under Bears ears. Um, so a lot of ups and downs and back and forth and and heated debates and um, uh, but but where do we stand right now um, in terms of how how from your point of view to to protect the land based on on where we are right now with the, with the government? Well, I think first and, and foremost, I think everybody needs to, to understand that um, there, are, there are three lawsuits who have been filed, and many people have it confused because they think that the lawsuits have been filed against BLM or other agencies, and actually the lawsuits are filed against President Trump for him pushing pin doing the one thing that he accused President Obama of doing, which is unilaterally, you know, protecting the land or or making a decision. Well, he did the same thing, scaling back 85% of what um, President Obama designated. Now we ask ourselves, how does that, what can we do, what's going on? I think first we've got to understand really what the political climate is and, and really what part do we play in this? And do I, or do I even play a part? Because many people think when, and this is what a lot of Utah elected leaders uh, put out there, is that if you are a Utahan, then you can weigh in. But if you don't, then you don't have a say in this issue. But we forget what public means. Public means everybody from one side of the country to the other, from one border to the other. Public is everybody. And we do have a right to public process. How do we participate in that? Every time that they, they call for public comment, we can, we can weigh in. Um, you can talk to your elected leaders, whether you live in the state of Utah or outside. Our voices are those elected individuals that are sitting in our state capitals, that are sitting in Washington, D.C. These are our voices. And Largely in part, what the five tribes did was we came together, we shed many, and I say as many years of traditional enemy ties to accomplish a common goal. And, you know, for many generations, indigenous people around the world have always had policies impacting their lives, not because they chose and invited those but they were all made in the best interest of those indigenous people. Well, these five tribes came together and utilized the tool, the Antiquities Act of 1906, and said, each of us have had this used against us at different points, but we would like to protect this land that's important to us. And by forming allies with many conservation groups, um, community groups, individuals, we showed the power of unity and participating in political process to invoke change based on our cultural beliefs, values, customs, and many generations 
of, of voices that were overshadowed. Mm. So to take all of that and to culminate it into one push, one movement, shows that we can be united. We can have one voice. And just because we come from a diverse um, environment on many levels does not make things impossible. Uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen, uh, I wonder if you uh, have a comment on anything you've been hearing here. Uh, I'll, I'll just ask that open-ended and then uh, jump in with a specific question. It's, this per- book came together quite fast. Andy, Andy Nettle and I decided we're going to publish this this wonderful piece that Amy had written. As she said, it, it, she was Andy had asked her to write a small essay, and she wrote a, a, a small book. And it needed to be a standalone project. This conversation first took place uh, between Andy Nettle and me in uh, I think May, and we brought this book to the page in the fall. And it's that's really lightning fast in in publishing time, just lightning, lightning fast. And it so it was a kind of a t- intense experience, it was a fast experience, and it was a glorious experience to work with Amy to shape some of the words on the page, inviting Blake and Regina to be a part of it, bringing the the book together with uh, a local artist, Amy. Amy Woodward from Southern Utah, and to have this this book as a representation of community has been one of the great experiences of my life as a publisher. What I want to do as a as a publisher and a publisher in Utah is to create a platform for voices that may not otherwise get heard. Many New York publishers are not interested in some of the issues that we have here in the West, and yet these issues like water, like land management, they affect our daily lives. They affect our communities. And I'm just so thrilled and grateful to have had this opportunity to work with Amy and Regina and Blake to create a book that, that offers something something new in the conversation about about our public lands, about how we how we honor land, how we we I love what what Regina said, you know, the, the power of unity to create change. She did it in a very large way with the Verizon Tribal Coalition. We're doing it in a in a different way with this book. But that's what we are after with all of our community conversations is bringing people together to talk about their values, talk about their stories, talk about what we where where the shared places are and how we can affect change on the landscape. It's uh, it's been a, a really tremendous experience and and partnering with other groups like Friends of Cedar Mesa to say how can we how can we work together to create a, a community conversation that would be larger than either one of us organizing alone has has been another another remarkable and tremendous part of the experience of of Desert Cabal. What what's the what's the most important uh, change you hope to to make in in this conversation? The most important change, I think, well, I, I would say two. One is a greater awareness and honoring of of women's voices in the conversation, in the literary conversation around conservation. We we still hear primarily from from men, from from white men. Not that 
not that there's anything wrong with, with being a man or being a white man, but we, we need more voices to have a fuller picture of what, of the conversation. So there, there's that. And then, and then these opportunities to bring lots of people together in, in conversation. That's been, uh, the, the other thing we've had, um, Amy and Regina and I and, and Blake, we did an event here in Salt Lake in November at the Patagonia store up here. It, it brought in a whole new audience for, for people who might not otherwise have attended a literary reading that might that typically would take place in a bookstore or a library. Desert Cabal is a great book for going out on the landscape, and it's a terrific opportunity in Bluff to be be coming together in a community that sits at the foot of Bears Ears, that sits across the river from the Navajo Nation and just down the road from Ute Mountain Ute areas, uh, and to to say, hey, what, here here are some new voices to to bring to the conversation about what we care about, what matters, and how what, if if we want to come together to honor the land in a different way. Uh, Amy Irvine, I was reading a, a review of, uh, of the book Desert Cabal, and uh, th- this reviewer was, uh, you know, very loved it. Uh, I, I was interested in this this uh, part portion of her review. Um, she says that uh, Amy Irvine takes one of the most iconic pieces of environmental literature and gives it a new voice. And she goes on to say, "I cringe to call it ecofeminism." Because can't we all just uh, be ecologically conscious regardless uh, of race, sex, gender, or class? But uh, I wonder what you think about that, that term, ecofeminism. You know, Tom, I I cringe, too. (laughs) And that is, having been a women's studies major, that's what I graduated in from the University of Utah many years ago. And so um, I I cringe also because it, it seems to be up there with, say, uh, eco-terrorism, like it's sort of, it's somehow, or even like the word cabal itself, like it has somehow become uh, more of a pejorative kind of term. And and I think, I think Kirsten and Regina have beautifully illustrated the fact that this is such a, uh, a social movement that reaches about beyond all kinds of borders and boundaries and ideas and mythologies and policies even. And um, I, I think... I think the most important thing is not to develop, um, say, if we're doing away with Ed Abbey's place in patriarchy, we should not replace it with a theme that eco-feminist matriarchy of some sort. Really what matters here is that we recognize that we can no longer speak about um, wilderness and environmental efforts without also speaking about um, the social injustices that are woven right into them, whether it be um, the the uranium mine tailings that are seeping into groundwater that um, the people in Bluff and the people on the Ute reservation there are are um, having to drink, or whatever the thing is that that who who is not getting represented, and how do I because I certainly also occupy a place of white privilege how do I make space for more of those voices to be heard and more of the stories that Regina's talking about and that Tory Health Press is trying to promote? We have this, I think no longer can we afford to have icons and idols and sort of key people that represent big movements. I think it's more about many voices and multitudes. I think about the Me Too movement, and it um, 
it, how many voices did it take to get one sexual predator convicted? It was a lot. So social change is slow and painful. Environmental change, um, for the better anyway, is also slow and painful. We don't have a lot of time. So by all means, let's get all those voices out there um, raising a ruckus. Uh, we we just have about uh, about four minutes left, so I want to move to conclusions here. Uh, gets a last word from our guests. So start with Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk. What would you say at the end of the, the, the conversation here? I would just say that male or female race, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and we really have to take care of what we intend to leave for our children and grandchildren, um, you know. Just be mindful, be respectful, and feel free to engage. Speak, speak your mind, speak your heart. And and just to follow up on the on the specific bears there, it kind of goes against what we're <laughs> we're saying on the overall narrative. We're trying to keep it on that, but I think uh, listeners are interested. Uh, lawsuits going forward, I believe, and we'll we'll see what happens in in the courts. Absolutely. Um, and, and just a little note, there's been, there's been slow change in regards to a lot of the, the legal um, discussions out there, both within the state of Utah and in, uh, on the Washington, D.C. front, and, and, and it is going to be slow. Um, but keeping faith and trying to remain positive is, is right along with my messaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen, what would you say, your, what, what, what do you hope the takeaway is from this conversation? It offers people the opportunity to think about how to create space, make space, listen to diverse voices around the conservation conversation, and to whom whom are we not hearing from, and why, and can we can we make some make some room for a greater shared storytelling experience around what what Blake Spalding calls a moral imperative to save wild places. And uh, so uh, where to find those voices? I guess uh, in part you would tell me Tory House Press, right? I would Tory Toryhouse.org. We have uh, we have over 50 books in print and we're we're always looking for the stories that illuminate our understanding of our ever-changing world and the the communities that we that we live in and that we want to become. I'll give the last word to Amy Irvine. What uh, what do you hope the takeaway is from this conversation? The thing that I would like people most to appreciate and really try to embody, as I am trying to embody it, it's not easy, but that is the practice of holding two truths or multiple truths at once. Um, We can occupy different types of politics or socioeconomic um, positions, and, and it doesn't mean that we have to make either or decisions about climate change or wilderness preservation or, or in this case, you know, uh, protecting the bear's ears. So I think right now there's just this deep, sharp divisions that have just left us lacking in civility and kindness and love and, and, and the sense of inclusion that I hope Edward Abbey would actually embrace today. You know, he, he was, he was a rebel rouser on the page and said things that were racist and very sexist and, um, I would love for him to be here on the show today and say to us what um, I would. I hope that he would have 
a different view of of how we come together now. Um, that solitude was a great literary device. It's also a great temporary state of being for renewal. But at the end of the day, can we all come together and sort of hold all of these truths at once? Well, the event is uh, called Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative. And that's on Friday, 7 p.m. at the Bears Ears Education Center on Main Street in Bluff. And uh, it's presented by the Friends of Cedar Mesa and Tory House uh, Press. And we have uh, had with us Amy Irvine, uh, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, and uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen. They'll all be involved in that uh, panel uh, discussion. Uh, So uh, thank you to all of you for uh, coming on with us on Access Utah today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you so much. And uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, we will have another uh, in our series of uh, uh, interviews with winners of the Pulitzer Prize, and it's uh, poet... Um, uh, Tayimba uh, Jess is uh, tomorrow. Uh, his very innovative uh, book of poetry called Olio. That's tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. Larry Charles is a comedy writer who's worked with some of the greatest ever. Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, Sasha Baron Cohen, even Bob Dylan, who he says is very funny. Larry Charles will tell you why, for his next project, he wanted to find out what some of the most dangerous people in the world find funny. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Support for agricultural reporting on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Veterinary Medicine, training the next generations of veterinarians to make One Health a reality and benefit for everyone. Details at vetmed.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.